Now after the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath is Saturday, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, which they considered Sunday, the two Marys, uh, Mary Magdalene, who was, we think, maybe a former prostitute that Jesus called out of that lifestyle into his community, and then the other Mary, which is perhaps his mom, we're not sure, and then another gospel has a third woman there, there could have been even more than that, um, but uh, they have gone to see the tomb. And uh, in some ways, it's not clear why. They, they wanted to anoint him with spices, but they knew that there was a stone there, so they knew they couldn't get through the stone. So they're kind of probably very confused, but they just loved, they loved him so much. Um, and so they come back to this tomb. And it's a very expensive tomb. It was the tomb of a man named Joseph of Arimathea, who was very wealthy. He was a secret follower of Jesus, and he used all of his wealth that he had put into that tomb, which would have been enormous amounts of money, to give it to Jesus for his burial. So it would have been a tomb cut into the stone um, with a big disc, a big huge stone disc they would roll into a groove to protect the body from any kind of desecration or defacement. And two years, or, uh, two days earlier on Friday, uh, we know that uh, Jesus who was now lying in the tomb, had been crucified uh, brutally by uh, the Romans. And so their practice, which they got from the Persians, was to put a nail through your two wrists and then also another nail through your ankles and attach you to a big, huge wooden cross that would actually be in the shape of a T. Uh, the, the top part usually was not there. It was like a flat T. And um, they would have been hanging there uh, for a long time, and um, eventually would die of suffocation. They couldn't breathe. So uh, these women had been there and seen all of that. All the other disciples left. It's amazing the way that these four Gospels all depict the women staying with him in in the cross. And then the only ones who show up on uh, Sunday morning are the women. And I'll just say this, that um, not only is that very countercultural for its time and very progressive, but also if you were making these stories up, the last people that you would make as your first witnesses to the event are women. Because in that day, women were not allowed to testify in court. So if you think that the Gospels were made up later by the disciples, they did a terrible job of propaganda. Because you would never have the women doing that. And so these women are very brave. um, And they're so brave that they're actually soldiers there who are guarding the tomb. And the women didn't mind that. They, They saw the soldiers and they just... They kept going to the tomb. But on their way to the tomb, in verse 2, Matthew tells us, uh, Matthew only tells us that, uh, behold, there was a great earthquake. And this is another thing I love about the four Gospels, is that the way they describe the resurrection event, you've got different events from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's almost hard to, to harmonize them. And the early church could have taken the four Gospels and tried to make everything smooth, and just written one conglomeration. And actually somebody did write that. And the church said, we don't want that. We want the four Gospels, each one telling different bits about what is actually going on on Easter morning. And it makes it very, very believable uh, that there would be slightly different things said. So, so Matthew notes that there was a great earthquake. And uh, the women hear this. Uh, you can imagine the ground under their feet shifting around. Um, trees maybe swaying near them. Uh, a massive earthquake. But then they turn a corner and they look and there's an angel. 
Uh, It says in verse 2, an angel descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And I've said this before, I'm a physics major uh, in college. The idea of angels pushing things and exerting forces and moving discs doesn't sit comfortably with me. I didn't necessarily think of angels as pushing or moving or fighting um, or having a certain mass or whatever that moves stones. But uh, it's just one of those little details. Who knows how... Matthew knew that, but what we're to believe from this inspired story is that somehow the angel, and another gospel has two angels, so at least one is described here, that the angel pushes back the, the huge disc that a human could not push back, uh, a very strong angel, maybe God sent the strongest angel to do this, but uh, when the women get there, he's like perched like a bird on the stone. He's sitting on that disc, and... Um, Matthew says that uh, his appearance was like lightning. We were talking today at Easter brunch about what an angel would look like. And, uh, of course, I don't know. I don't know if you've seen an angel. But um, if you've seen an angel, it's not like those cherubs you see in, in Hallmark carbs, little babies with wings, stuff like that, that are cute. They're not cute. Matthew says his appearance was like lightning. And I was just trying to think about what does lightning look like? And why would you describe any kind of being as lightning? But uh, C.S. Lewis, who's got a great imagination, in his space trilogy, he, he imagines an angel like this. He says, uh, this is somebody who sees a pair of angels. They were burning white, like white hot iron. So if you've ever seen heated metal, that whiteness. Uh, again, this is imaginative, this is fictional, but this is what he thinks. They're burning white, like white hot iron. They were swiftly undulating like waterfalls or flames. So you have this movement. Whenever he looked straight at them, they appeared to be rushing towards him at enormous speed. So that's just the imaginative depiction of an angel by one writer. But it is worth thinking about um, that uh, if there are angels all over the place out there, they're not things that we're comfortable living with or living very near. Because when the guards uh, encounter the angel, uh, it says, for fear of him, they trembled and became like dead men. And, and these are not like security guards at a sporting event. You know, these are not like um, the ones you see at a football game, maybe. Uh, this is like, I think, more like Russell Crowe and Gladiator, if you've seen that movie. Like, really strong guards that have, that have fought down rebels. These are seasoned warriors. And here they are, uh, trembling like dead men. I mean, imagine them curl up in a ball, like in a catatonic state. They're uncontrollably shaking. They're basically paralyzed. That's what an angel does to a guard. And so imagine if you saw an angel. But it wasn't just the guards. The angels say to the women in verse 5, do not be afraid. And uh, I'm sure that when angels are about to see a human, they just kind of get, they prepare themselves like, okay, it's going to happen again. Uh, they're going to see me and they're going to they're be terrified. And so they always say, when they, feed, when they meet humans, they always say, do not be afraid. Like, it's okay, I'm not going to kill you. Um, don't be afraid. And that means they were afraid. And this is an interesting thing about the resurrection stories. There's always this fear. Um, There's a fear that is in the resurrection stories. And again, it makes it believable to me that uh, when you're dealing with something very, very out of the ordinary like this, there's going to be uh, that kind of the paranormal, you know, fears that you would have. If If you were told that there was an alien behind that door right there and it was about to come out, that kind of fear, uh, it's not cringing terror. It's like an awe or a wonder. Uh, what is this thing going to be like? 
Verse 8, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear. Verse 10, when Jesus saw them, he said, do not be afraid. Again, implying they were afraid. So there's all this fear and there's wonder. And if you're really encountering the resurrection as a reality, you're going to feel that fear and that wonder. Hopefully, even as uh, I describe this, as Amy read that passage, as you experience the Lord's Supper and the singing, um, there's a wonder to it. The women felt that wonder without a doubt. Uh, The guards felt it initially, and then, if you notice in the story, it begins to wear off. And um, I want to look at that distinction between those two things, uh, the guards and the women. In verse 11, it's interesting, Matthew depicts them like running past each other. So you kind of picture an intersection just outside Jerusalem, and it says in verse 11, while they were going out of the city, some of the guards were going into the city. So the women are heading up towards Bethany, probably, and then the guards are heading down into Jerusalem. They cross past each other. And, and I think that uh, what Matthew is saying is that they, they, their reactions to the fear are completely different. On the one hand, you have the wonder of the women that send them out to tell their brothers. And then on the other hand, you have the uh, cynicism of the guards, which just begins to suppress the experience of the wonder and the fear. And eventually they take money. Um, they, they receive a bribe to just let, basically to, 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 to destroy the hopes of many, many people. Thousands, maybe, maybe more than thousands of people. Because they, they begin to tell this story about how actually he wasn't raised. We didn't see an angel. We actually saw them steal his body. So that's cynicism. So the wonder of the women and the cynicism of the guards, and really even a deeper cynicism of the chief priests, who are the ones that pay the guards to do this. So, uh, first of all, let's talk about cynicism, because I know there are a lot of skeptics out there, a lot of cynics, even those who believe, I mean, I believe this stuff, obviously, I'm a preacher, but even people like me, there's a lot of cynicism inside of me about these kind of stories. And certainly the chief priests had an enormous amount of cynicism because as soon as they hear the story now they haven't experienced any of this they don't know what they're talking about but as soon as they hear the story they're like didn't happen not only did it not happen but we're going to shut it down with all of our power with all of our authority and so they pay the guards in verse 12 they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and then even more uh, diabolical they kind of threaten they, they indirectly threaten the guards with uh, you could be basically killed for this. If it was found out by, by Pontius Pilate that you departed your post, you could be killed. That's treason. And so look at verse 14. Uh, if this comes to the governor's ear, you know, hint, hint, uh, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. If, if it comes to the governor's ear and we don't protect you, you're dead. So they not only give them money, they threaten them. And of course, in verse 15, we see that it worked, sadly. The story of the disciples taking the body had spread among the Jews even to the day that Matthew wrote the gospel, which is probably like 70, 70 AD. And so that's the cynicism, and it probably doesn't operate in your heart exactly the way it did with these guards and the chief priests. But um, you know, forget the wonder, forget, the, what, forget what happened in the garden, forget those feelings I've had, those mystical experiences. Let's get back to life as normal. Let's get back to safety. It's going to keep you out of trouble. Not to get too much into all that resurrection stuff. It's going to keep you uh, financially secure. They took the money. 
So both in terms of safety and security, always better bet to go with no resurrection. Always better to go with cynicism and skepticism and um, being hard-minded, you know, hard-nosed. Um, it's incredibly easy to deny an encounter with, with God. And it's incredible how many people I've talked to that, that don't believe that say, well, I did have this experience. I talked to a person today like that. Uh, she was like, I'm not sure exactly what I believe, but I did have this amazing experience once that I, I know that it was, it, was, it was God. And by the time the guards reached the palace, um, the fear that they felt, the wonder back in the garden, is beginning to go away. And now they start thinking about their job security and their family and protecting themselves. And um, they probably told themselves, you know, I don't know what happened back there. That, that probably was more like a hallucination or maybe we ate something the, the night before, or um, we didn't sleep enough. But you know that they didn't continue to really believe that happened, or else they couldn't live with the, uh, you know, the, the cognitive dissonance in their, in their heads. And so they, they just began to believe that it didn't even really happen, or it was, some, it was something internally to them that was not really out there and really real. And uh, the reason that I, I can get where they're coming from is I've had those experiences too. I have had uh, these incredibly uh, powerful spiritual experiences in the evening um, a few times in my life, late at night, and um, sometimes when I think back about them, I'm like, okay, God does exist. You can't deny that. I know right now that you really want to go back to being an atheist, but you had that experience, Ben, so you know, don't forget that. And then this other part of me says, well, you know, you, it was late at night. And um, sometimes at night your emotions get really exaggerated and your brain can go haywire. And I've got, I've got these kind of problems anyway with my brain chemistry. And so, you know, it probably was something like that. It was some side effect of all that. It's really easy, really easy to dismiss spiritual experiences. And I even can understand where the chief priests are coming from um, in the sense of like just kind of outright rejecting the resurrection without even thinking about it. Again, they've had no experience with this thing, and yet, uh, without any curiosity, they come up with this alternative story to the resurrection, namely, verse 13, uh, his disciples came by night and they stole him away while the highly trained guards were asleep. You know, it's very unlikely, uh, but we can all come up with an alternative narrative to what happened back there. There's always this kind of alternative narrative to how Christianity spread and why the early disciples all died. That they kind of came together and made it up. Can you imagine them making this up and then spreading that news and and basically uh, apostatizing from Judaism, so risking eternal damnation uh, and then dying Peter upside down on a cross? Of course, he made this up, right? He he made the story up. He stole the body and told everybody that he rose. So we always have these alternative explanations that really don't make any sense. But I understand that because I do the same thing. Just a knee jerk rejection. And I think it's worth some really deep thinking uh, about your own life. Again, whether you believe it fundamentally or don't, but it's really worth some deep thought about what do I actually believe about that? And have I, have I ever really encountered the resurrected Christ, that there really is a person out there that can impact me somewhere in my mind, somewhere uh, in my feelings, maybe even my visual capacity, but this living person can come and interact with me. Um, 
It's easy to come here on Easter and just to, to feel a little bit of something stirs up a little bit of curiosity maybe in you, uh, but then you go home and you just kind of let it slip away because there's a great 9 o'clock NBA playoff game tonight, and if you watch that and have a great meal, uh, then, you know, pretty soon the resurrection is kind of on the periphery of your life. Uh, easier to think about um, what's going on on Instagram or in your job. and just Because thinking about death is certainly not a very pleasant thing. And if you think about resurrection, you have to think about death. So it's really easy to come here and cynicism is really safe and uh, it's, it's also very corrosive. Uh, there's, a, there's a dark side to cynicism, which is that it's like acid and it, whatever it touches, whether that's resurrection stories or just your love for your wife, uh, cynicism will erode everything. And if you see through everything, then you see nothing. If you see through every single thing, then what you end up seeing is absolutely nothing. You believe in nothing. And so it starts with you know, maybe your trust in politicians. The cynicism has eaten that away, and maybe rightly so, but uh, then it can move into like romantic love, and you don't trust that anymore. You've seen through all that, and then your love for your parents... Uh, or your love for your children, and then that's gone. And eventually, you know, all faith, all hope, all love, even goodness itself, you say, I've seen through all that. I've been there, done that. I know it's all a sham. It's all fake. And uh, cynicism is just a really easy way to look smart and to sit back with a knowing smirk and poke holes in everybody else's hope. It's very easy to be cynical. It's very hard to have wonder and to be in awe. And to have hope. I'm reading a novel that I hear is a lot better than the movie. I heard the movie is not good, but the novel's really good. It's called Ready Player One. And if you love 80s video games like I did, uh, it is the book for you. It's about a boy whose father and mother have died, and his life is so miserable that he spends his entire life on the internet. A really realistic internet uh, that's going to happen in 30 years, apparently. Um, and so, because of that, he's very, very angry and very, very jaded. And um, there's one scene in which he says, uh, at some point in my life, I started to figure out the ugly truth that this story about how we were created by a loving God who cares about us was total BS, an ancient fairy tale like Santa Claus. And then he adds, and that story about going to a wonderful place called heaven where there's no pain or death, total BS, no evidence, we made that up, wishful thinking. You're going to die, and then nothing happens. Your brain simply stops working. And that's kind of the the ultimate extreme of cynicism, is just there's nothing after death. This is all there is. You're going to die. Nothing happens. Your brain stops working. And even if there's a veneer of rationality to your rejection of the resurrection, oftentimes it's really driven by something deeper Namely, this kind of skepticism. This, it's a posture. It's not something you can prove. It's just a posture you have of cynicism. So that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is wonder. The wonder of these women. Verse 8, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. I love that combination. Fear and great joy. That just shows you that fear is not a cringing, terrified fear. Um, it's a wonder. It's an awe. To reverence, and they ran to tell his disciples. I and mean, picture that. 
the, the word departed quickly is, is not really what the Greek says. It says more like they sprinted. Imagine when children hear ice cream and they're playing like in the yard. And when they hear ice cream, the way they run into the house. It's like these women were like shot from a cannon by the wonder of what happened in that tomb when they met that angel. And they're not wearing running shoes and they're not in shorts. They're not about to go jogging. Uh, they are wearing long flowing robes. They have sandals on their feet. They're probably holding the head wraps on their head as they sprint out of the tomb, up the Mount of Olives to see their brothers and their sisters. And uh, the question is, what kind of wonder could make someone run like that? Um, someone who's an adult, like sprint in these clothes. And I think the answer is verse 5, where the angel just tells them this very simple sentence. If you really believe the sentence, took it to heart, it would make you sprint. It'd make you run out of the church tonight. That Jesus who was crucified is not here. For he has risen. Come and see for yourselves. And I love that the, the angel is not, um, he's not speaking in symbolic terms. He's not talking about mythology here. Or like the resurrection is a symbol of how all things are one. Or how we're all one thing. The, the, great, the ground of being or something like that. He is a, he is a very concrete thinker. Uh, he is you know, not an N but an S on the Myers-Briggs. And so he specifically says, come and see for yourselves. The invitation is to investigate. And, and the angel says it's the same person that died that is now risen. That's really important. The same Jesus who was crucified is now risen. It's the same wrists that have been lacerated and the same uh, ankle bones that had been shattered the same lungs that had been punctured and collapsed, and the same brain that had been traumatized, and all the tendons that were frayed, the pierced side, that person, that body. It's that Jesus who died Friday, who really died. He didn't just swoon or fall asleep or enter a coma. He really, really died. He was three days dead. That Jesus is going to come back to life, is what the angel is saying. And a a famous poem by John Updike says this, uh, If Jesus' cells did not reverse their dissolution, his molecules re-knit, and his amino acids rekindle, then the church would fall. If Jesus' cells did not reverse their dissolution, his molecules re-knit, and his amino acids rekindle, then the church would fall. John Updike. And what this is saying is that all of your real suffering... And this real body is going to be raised. So he, he wasn't raised without nail marks. He says to Thomas, put your hand in those marks. I want you to see that it's the same me. All your suffering, you know, if you have arthritic fingers or migraine headaches or a bad hip, um, those things, it's those parts of you that are going to be redeemed. They're going to be resurrected in a new and glorious way that you can't imagine. And it, it's this very body right here. This is the heart of the wonder, is that it is this body. It's not a generic body, but it's my body. No matter how bad it gets, and I hope it doesn't get too bad before I die, but whatever happens to this body, this is the one that's going to be raised. And that's the wonder. Even if you're cremated, by the way. People ask me about cremation. If I get cremated, does that mean he can't find all the particles and put me back together? Obviously not. It's not the same... It's not the same atoms, but it's the same shape. 
It's, it's, it's something that he can figure out and gather up all these particles and put me back together with a new spiritual body that does not die. I love in verse 9 that it says they came up and took a hold of his feet. I mean, what can be more earthly than your feet? I mean, they smell terrible. You're, and back then, even more so. And I wonder if his feet smelled bad or not in this new spiritual body. Whether they did or not, the, the physical feet are what the women grabbed a hold of. They grabbed his feet. The same feet that were walking on Thursday night, they're grabbing here. And then, and then the angel says in verse 10, uh, go to Galilee. No, this is actually Jesus. Go to Galilee and there they will see me. He's talking to the women about the disciples, their brothers and sisters, go to Galilee. And the reason I like that about Galilee is because if you type in Galilee uh, today or, or Nazareth or whatever the place in Capernaum, there's an actual GPS location for that. It will come up on the screen. And the point being that, that the new body had a GPS location. It's, it's real. And, um, and, and it's something that you could measure and he had a certain weight and his certain eye color, the same one he had before. And, it, and, if, and if you've ever longed to touch the actual skin of a loved one who is gone, or if you wanted to smell the unique scent, you don't want to just encounter them spiritually, like as a soul to a soul, but you want them, just remember they took hold of his feet, that it was those feet that they loved so much. And if you've ever experienced the horror of watching a person's body cease to operate, and I've seen that happen, that's a horrible thing, where they just stop moving. You know, the parts, their eyes, their lips, their nose, the things that you normally see, they just stop. This is saying that that's going to be redeemed. And the body's going to come back. And so the particular shape of this person's eye is going to shine again. That, that eye and the mouth with its unique curve is going to smile again, that, that Jesus met them and he said with his voice, with his particular way of looking in the shape of his bone structure, verse 9, greetings. He said to them greetings with his voice. And this is a joy that cannot come without suffering. There's a certain kind of joy that you just can't have. It's called a mega joy in verse 8. They departed from the tomb with fear and great joy, of course, Matthew could have said joy, but he says mega joy because it is not like most joy that you feel. The joy when your favorite team wins or when the weather's beautiful or when you're on vacation, you've had delicious brunch or whatever that joy is, this is not that joy. There's a great joy that God loves to give us, but this is not that joy. This is not optimism. This is not feeling good. This is a joy bigger than death. It's a joy that is intensified by going through death. Because the one who was crucified is raised. And so wonder doesn't have to live in the little gaps in your life where, where suffering hasn't hit. And you can think of your life as this big canvas and the black parts of the canvas keep growing as the suffering grows. And there's less and less wonder and joy. That's not how the Bible depicts things. It's more like the joy just spreads its wings over all the suffering. Uh, and, and makes it completely new. Turns it into wonder. And so wonder is the abolishment, the abolition of this fear of death that is so deep, that is such a great power inside of us, that um, fuels so much of our, uh, of our terror about things. There's actually a, a psychological theory called terror management theory that I just learned about. And 
What terror management theory says is that there's certain fears that are so big that they've got to be focused uh, onto something or else they just take over everything. It's so diffuse and massive and overwhelming that you've got to focus that fear into one thing. And the fear of death is, is the biggest fear of all. Whether you think about it or not, you don't have to be over 50 to start thinking about that. The fear of death drives so much of our behavior. And uh, the terror management theory says that this fear gets injected into like spiders or germs. So you're germaphobe or you have arachnophobia or darkness or being around people and you have these fears that begin to develop. And what the terror management theory says is that this powerful overwhelming fear of death has to get pushed into things. And so you begin to do these repetitive behaviors like you hand washing or checking your closet or under your bed or stopping at lights or bridges. All this kind of ritualistic behavior, uh, according to terror management theory, a lot of that is driven by a fear of death. And it almost has to be necessarily focused into things because that, that fear of death is so big that it, it otherwise would just completely enslave us. I thought about the, uh, the Lord of the Rings and probably the, the worst thing in that whole uh, trilogy is the, the scream of those uh, Nazgul uh, the, the ring raids, you know, if, you, if you've seen the movie, they, that scream they make, this like big dark shadow of a wing of one of those horrible fell beasts, that creature, the flying dragons. It says, Tolkien says, a long drawn out wail, like the cry of some evil lonely creature that rose and fell and ended with a high piercing note. And it paralyzes everybody, it makes them want to stop fighting and just die. That's kind of like the fear of death, is that scream. Or to use another analogy, if if there's an ultimate fighting champion, like there's a cosmic cage match and you put atomic bombs and supernovas and black holes and a big bang all together in a big cage match, and if death went in there, death would beat all of them. Because death is the ultimate power. It's the last enemy, according to Paul. And so the fear of death is, ter- is terrifying and, and is, is the ultimate fear. And, he, and death is the greatest... Uh, he, he would sing, we are the champions. You know, he, would, he would win every tournament. But what if someone entered that cage who was stronger than death? And that's what the resurrection is all about, is that, that God himself became a human, died, entered the cage with death, and snapped his neck, you know, like, a, like a dog does with a chicken, just a single wag of the head, and it's just dead. Death dies. And Hebrews 2.14 says, Jesus died that he might destroy the power of death and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. I want to close just with a, a story, a very tiny short story of driving home from Myrtle Beach uh, Friday. And we got to Blenheim, South Carolina. And uh, I corrected my wife's pronunciation of Blenheim. Uh, and uh, as an annoying person, I sometimes am. And then... And then she pulled over suddenly, which I thought was like retaliation. I was like, what the are you doing? And uh, it was a four-lane road. It was a four-lane road, and she's like, well, look. You know? And she pointed, and there was a, a police car with the flashing blue lights. And then I saw another police car behind that one about a mile. And then I realized that between those two police cars, there was a hearse, and then there was the cars with the lights on. And it was a funeral procession. And um, I was writing the sermon. Everybody pulled over, rural South Carolina, and we sat there a couple minutes. Um, and uh, Cooper, our son, said, 
uh, Dad, this isn't a regular funeral. People don't usually do this for funerals. And it made me realize I hadn't seen that kind of thing in a long time. I don't know if you've seen that. Maybe I'm just not in the right places to see these things. But I haven't seen one of those in a while. And, um, and it just was a good reminder to me of death. But then I thought, you know, it's Good Friday. What if, what if there was like a, another car in front of the police car that was leading the whole procession? And that car was like a float on the Macy's Day Parade or like the Rose Bowl Parade with like a huge inflatable cross that was empty with Jesus on it and maybe filled with flowers to show uh, the glory of new life driving in front of all those cars and the dead person in the hurts and, and it just reminded me of the, the king that we